When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hey, Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Today, Pierce Morgan. Now, I have definitely had quite a few Barneys, including on air with Pierce Morgan over the years. So there's quite a lot to talk about because actually people like me who really did have a big problem with Pierce Morgan for a long time uh, knew the world had turned upside down when we started cheering him on uh, during the first phase of the pandemic because a lot of the media failed to do their job. They failed to take on the government, hold them to account for the calamity which which has been unleashed and has led to one of the worst death tolls on earth and Pierce Morgan was willing to stand up to them. Um, but we do have our differences. Now, there's a bit of controversy over this interview and that is over the issue of trans rights which me and Pierce strongly disagree on. And the controversy was that we're, neither of us are trans uh, and the common parlance for that is we're not, uh, sorry, we're, we're cisgendered. And a lot of people were kind of upset, understandably, that me, a cisgendered guy, decided to spend a significant chunk of this interview uh, arguing about a minority of which I'm not part with Pierce Morgan. And I recognise that. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry about that. Uh, and definitely I would, I would approach it differently. Uh, we don't just talk about trans stuff, uh, trans rights uh, in this interview. Um, we talk about a lot of other things, but it's just worth me just pointing that out. Bit of housekeeping. The new podcast is offering an alternative to the right media, taking on injustice, having some fun. Uh, if you want to support us as we do more and more, either use a support function. We're really, really grateful for all that support. Or patreon.com forward slash owenjones 84 and then you can be a regular supporter and have a say over what we do, who we talk about. Uh, please give us five stars on iTunes. It just helps get the message across. And subscribe. After all that, here's the chat. Pierce, what an absolute honour. Hello. <laughs> do you actually um, mean that? Though? The tables have well and truly been turned. I'm relishing this already. Uh, I see how, how sadistic I can be in... In revenge for our, it's it's fair to say we've clashed over the years. Um, yeah. But I, before we talk about that, I mean, here's the book, of course. Here's Wake Up by Pierce Morgan. Um, one thing, and I have said it because we we really have had some quite bitter bitter clashes. But the one thing, and this is a lot of people have had this. We had to go through this quite a traumatic moment of repeatedly retweeting Pierce Morgan. If I was going to go back to January and I had ten seconds to explain. The world has turned upside down. The one bit of evidence I would give is Piers Morgan has become a voice of sanity against the Conservative government. Um, but on the pandemic, the reason I keep saying this isn't to suck up to you, is because I think lives would have been saved in this country if more journalists had held the government to account as passionately and uncompromisingly you've done. So you deserve a huge amount of kudos for that. Thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think I noticed you. You know, t- to your credit, you did publicly support me when I was doing that, and I appreciated that because we weren't exactly easy bedfellows before. Although I always felt we share more in common than perhaps either of us would like to admit. Uh, but I, I uh, yeah, I, I felt this pandemic was a big moment for journalists actually around the world. And a lot of them came up short, unfortunately, because what was quite clear very early on, particularly in the UK and the US, is that the governments and the leadership were not being held to proper account. And that as a result, thousands of people were dying unnecessarily. And I think that's what history will judge, I think, quite scathingly about many journalists. What, what, I mean, before I, we talk about the book, I mean, well, it is, I mean, you talk about it, obviously, at length in the book, but, but why? Why do you think there's been such a colossal failure by so many, not just in the press, but also broadcasters? At the very start, we saw the scenes in Northern Italy, hospitals being overwhelmed, herd immunity was being openly briefed to, new, for, to senior journalists. Uh, the failures of test and trace. Why? Why that failure to scrutinise you think on the part of so much of the media? I don't think that many journalists, um, like many of the government, realised the enormity of this before it was too late. Um, I think the reality is if you were following the very lax and complacent language used by, say, Matt Hancock in the House of Commons on January the 23rd, he said Britain is completely prepared for all these things. We have a world-class testing system in place for this coronavirus. I mean, he says it all in the House of Commons. And I remember watching this going, really? Do we? And of course, very, very quickly, within a matter of five, six weeks, it became clear we had no such thing. We were completely ill-prepared. We had no world-class testing system. And that was in direct contrast to many other countries around the world. Germany, right on our doorstep, had a world-class testing system. But other countries like Taiwan had an incredibly sophisticated testing system, track, test, uh, test and isolate, because they had worked on previous diseases like Ebola and realized the potential of a global pandemic and prepared themselves accordingly. And, you know, if you compare us to countries around the world, there's always an excuse that the kind of, you know, corona skeptics will use or the Boris Johnson defenders will use. Well, they've got this or they've got that. But how do you explain a country like Taiwan? It's an island like us, densely populated, and yet they've had hardly any deaths. Um, if you do like with like with a country like that, it is scandalous how badly prepared we were and how badly we've handled the thing. So in answer to your question about the journalists, I think a lot of them shared the complacency of the government. And I got increasingly angry in the early part of March as I could see what was happening in Italy. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, Italy is the second best healthcare system in the world. Number two, and it's been completely run over. What the hell will happen here, given that the NHS is number 18? And people didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it now when the second wave is happening. There's a weird construct uh, amongst many minds in this country, and the same in America and same in other countries, of just fingers in the ears, believing the conspiracy theories and not wanting to see cold, hard fact when it's slapping you in the chops. So, loving over... Let's disagree. In the book, so let's get... By the way, it's, I, I, I was thoroughly entertained. It, it was, I can imagine you just sitting there chatting about it. It was very engaging. Obviously, 
a lot of that I found deeply aggravating. So we'll talk about that. That's great. That's that's the point of this whole conversation. Of course, it was supposed to be to provoke and, and, and so on, and it has. Okay, so when you, you write in it, what people like me say, as new, is that freedom of speech must be fiercely protected from attempts to shut it down, and that most of the attacks on freedom of speech now come from people claiming to be tolerant liberals. I suppose the the reason people like myself find that maybe a bit galling to read in some ways, I'll explain why. I don't regard myself as a liberal, by the way, I'm a socialist, but let me just put that to one side. There's someone in prison at the moment uh, serving a two-year, eight-month sentence, a far-right, and I'm not saying this, by the way, I'm tougher than I look. This isn't about me, me, me. I'm just using it as a case study. But he's in prison because they, they beat me up on my birthday, convicted of being a far-right extremist. Yeah. No, no, of course, and you agree on that, and I'm not, I'm not, not suggesting mm-hmm. otherwise. Uh, you know, and that was the culmination of what I would regard as a very obsessive far-right campaign, repeatedly targeted in the streets by Tommy Robinson supporters, how surrounded, scr- abuse screamed mm-hmm. when I'm on television to try and drown me out, death threats. T- t- you know, it's had a big impact. It's, it's changed the way I have to live my life. Far more seriously, Joe Cox, killed by a far-right extremist, of course, a few years ago. Rosie Cooper, a Labour MP who, you know, there was a far-right terror plot against her. Numerous far-right terror plots have been, have, have been thankfully stopped. Isn't it the case that actually, firstly, that whole element is stripped out of this whole debate about who's attacking whose freedom of speech? And the threat of the far-right, who have killed and are responsible for violence, is the biggest threat to free speech in this country, not often people complaining on Twitter. Well, I make, I make the point very clearly that I think the right are just as bad uh, as the left in this regard. And I make that early. But I also make the point that my real point of the book is to talk to fellow liberals who I think have forgotten how to be liberal. In relation to the stories that you're talking about, what happened to you, to Joe Cox and so on, they're all utterly disgusting. And I find all this rise of the far right, which is linked to the rise of populism, disgusting as well. And I, I share your concern about that. And there's no doubt the number of far right attacks over the world, around the world is increasing and has to be stopped. Um, so we're completely in agreement about that. And that is, of course, they want to stifle free speech. They are the conventional fascists, if you like, which I think you and I share a, a, a horror of. Uh, where I have a problem is where my fellow liberals, and if you want to exclude yourself, that's fine, as a socialist boy. Um, but as my, my argument with fellow liberals is I try and explain in the book early on the history of liberalism, and that actually uh, it's not about you know far-right lunatics shooting politicians. We can all agree that's appalling. Actually, recently we had a much, uh, a much sort of smaller example of this where everyone basically agreed. David Starkey you know, came out with some shockingly overt racism uh, in, a, in a podcast interview. And I noticed that most people agreed, didn't matter what persuasion they were, left or right, there was pretty much a consensus. He shouldn't be given airwave time to spew that kind of overt racism. He's so been cancelled then. Sorry? David Stark, he's been cancelled. Well, in a way, yeah. And I, I make the point of the book, it's not about stopping anybody from being prohibited from having a platform if what they're spewing is that kind of extremely hateful, obvious racist rhetoric. So I'm not, it's not like, cancel culture is not about the right to stop people like that spewing racism. I wanna make that clear. My argument with cancel culture and what it really is about is it's it's been expanded 
way, way, way away from the original intention of what being woke was supposed to be. Being woke was supposed to be alert and alive to social and racial injustice. And I would honestly say that I have throughout my career uh, campaigned very, very hard uh, for and against social and racial injustice. It's been the bedrock of a lot of the stuff I've done on on television. Uh, And so I, I think the problem comes when the Wokies, as I call them, expand the area to which they want to cancel people to almost anything and everything that they personally don't agree with. And that can be jokes, it can be movies, it can be TV shows, it can be statues, it can be presidents of the United States who are otherwise revered. It can be anything and everything. And then this Twitter mob rises up uh, because Twitter is predominantly skewed liberal. Uh, We know that from all the data research. And it gets very uh, nasty, it gets very aggressive. And companies and corporations run scared and they bow to the mob and they start firing people, not people like me. I'm big enough and ugly enough to look after myself. But they do start firing people and reacting to this illiberal liberalism. And my point is, look, come on, this is not about liberalism. It's anti-liberal. It's antithetical to, to liberalism, as is no platforming people at universities that you don't agree with. I mean, you can hardly get a conservative speaker anymore at universities because the woke students encouraged by a lot of woke professors rise up and get them cancelled. That's not liberalism. And you can only be a true liberal if you're prepared to listen to somebody who you completely disagree with. What do we actually mean by being cancelled, though? Because it's, look, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a Times newspaper article which gave an example of cancel. It gave examples of cancel, cancel culture. They included people like Scarlett Johansson, who was criticised for taking a role, a trans role on in a film. And it included Kevin Spacey, who's accused of numerous sexual assaults. And isn't that the problem? I mean, the difference is Kevin Spacey will probably never work in a film ever again. And I think yeah. we can accept there's a very good reason for that. Mm. Well, Scarlett Johansson remains a multi-millionaire, an actor who will appear in film after film and after film. How does a term like that used to describe, in this case, an alleged sexual predator and someone who is just criticised on Twitter and continues to be very successful? Well, I don't think Kevin Spacey's been cancelled. You know, he, he was subject to the Me Too campaign where people made very serious allegations against him, uh, some of whom died before the, the, the anything could be taken further in terms of a legal process. So to me, that's a completely different area that is involving uh, criminal activity. Uh, and and you know, my only thing with that is I think people should be entitled to due process. And I make that point strongly in the book, too. I, don't, I think, again, it's illiberal. And, and and anti-liberal, if you like, to not allow people due process. So that would be my response to Kevin Spacey. Scarlett Hansen is not going to be cancelled. But I make the point with her that she tried to cancel uh, another actor. Um, I write about this in the book. I can't remember who it is now, but it was another actor that she made a big point of making a big speech about uh, before he'd actually been he'd been accused by a few women of inappropriate behaviour, but he hadn't been arrested, he hadn't been investigated, he hadn't been prosecuted. He still hasn't to this day. So nothing came of any of these allegations. And yet she cancelled him publicly on a stage or tried to and said, this is the kind of disgusting thing we're talking about. And yet there's the same Scarlett Johansson who uh, put her arm around Roman Polanski and is happy to work for him and support him. And my point with that is, well, that's just blatant hypocrisy. 
Roman Polanski is a fugitive child rapist. So, you know, work out where your morality lies. And Hollywood has a very warped and twisted morality. But I would, I would throw back at you this about cancel culture. I actually think a prime example has been what's just been happening at The Guardian. Oh, I think it's a very interesting debate. I'd be very curious to see what you have to say about it because what's interesting to me is it's raging internally at The Guardian, and I'm seeing a lot of high-profile Guardian journalists go public defending Suzanne Moore. I don't get on with Suzanne Moore. I think she blocked me. I blocked her. She's written terrible things about me. Um, However, I've gone back for the purposes of our chat today, and I've read the supposedly contentious pieces about her. And I'm completely at a loss to understand why a liberal newspaper like The Guardian, particularly a pro-women newspaper like The Guardian, uh, has allowed a situation where one of their high-profile columnists cannot express, a, a, I believe, a genuinely held view, uh, and, and it results in 300 or so members of The Guardian, including yourself, signing a petition expressing your fury in this, and the result of all this has been she's been driven out of the paper. Now, that to me... Is but, a but, 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 I have to say, this is a really good. This is a really good example, and I actually, I mean, I should just emphasize to my employers that I, I, I have no choice in a sense but to talk about this because it's sensitive, uh, given given it's my workplace and my employees we're talking about. Uh, but I think you would rightly say if this isn't included. I'm sure you you probably on Twitter go, he cut this bit out. So let's talk about it, mm-hmm. uh, and I hope my employees are understanding on that basis. Um, what do you mean she was driven out? Well, she's left the paper. She resigned. She resigned from the newspaper. But what have you read the letter? Have you the letter you're talking about? Have you read the letter? I've read your letter, the one that was signed by all the staff. Where, where does it mention Suzanne Moore? Well, it's obvious who you're talking about, isn't it? No, you see, it isn't. And I think this is a really important point. There was a long running Suzanne Moore, really. There was a long running dispute at the at the Guardian. Also, it's reflected at other publications in America as well. But in Britain, specifically on coverage of trans issues, and that's a long-running issue at the Guardian newspaper, it's about Guardian editorials, it's about numerous Guardian articles. Mm. Now, the reason that letter was, was, was written is three members of, three trans members of staff quit. Were they driven out? Were they cancelled? No, they were just behaving ridiculously. But, but, uh, but I'm trying to work this one out. So Suzanne Moore, and bear in mind, the editorial position of The Guardian on trans issues is closer to Suzanne than it is to mine. Right. So it seems odd. Why is Suzanne being driven out of a newspaper whose position is closer to hers than it is to mine? Or well, the she clearly felt, as did most people outside The Guardian. It's fascinating if you, want to, if you want to clarify that was not the case. But given the proximity of that letter to that column that she wrote, she clearly believed that that was directed at it her. Was, it was to do with articles generally published by the newspaper. That's but you wouldn't be including hers, right? Well, it, it, was, it, it specifically says trans, the coverage of trans issues across the newspaper. But That's this is the record. What, what was it in her column which triggered such anger? Because I can't see what the problem was. I've read it three times. So the, the, the issue of this, we're going to talk about trans rights, by the way. That's one of the things that I've marked down that never, because it's a big part of the book as well. <laughs> um, yeah. But so we'll talk about that separately because it is difficult for me to talk specifically at length about Suzanne Moore, given it was a letter about trans coverage at the no, I'm just curious what it was because I've really struggled to, to find the, anything. The, the letter was about, so, to put it in context. Warrant the kind of reaction it got. I was curious. That's all. To, to put it in context, Guardian US, so the Guardian US, months earlier, had written an editorial objecting to the Guardian's coverage of trans issues. Mm-hmm. Because in the Guardian, so-called 
people we would both call liberals tend to have, there's a consensus amongst liberals in the United States to support trans rights. It's seen as a Republican right thing not to support it. Whilst in Britain, amongst so, so self-described liberals, there's a division, there's a split. So there's a long-running battle within The Guardian, as there is within British liberalism, if you like, over the issue of trans rights. Now, what I don't understand is, why is Suzanne Moore, and it's up to her about her resignation, she's someone, she quit The Guardian voluntarily, she mm. got a huge amount of support on social media, including from people who don't support her politics generally. Mm. But why is it ridiculous for three members three trans members of staff to leave the newspaper, not feeling that it's a welcoming place for them. They're being ridiculous, but Suzanne Moore voluntarily resigning is cancel culture. Well, no, I, I would say the ridiculousness is that any of this is happening in a paper like The Guardian. Uh, I don't understand how you could work for The Guardian and not want to embrace all kinds of disparate views, even if they concern an area in which you have a personal interest. For example, if you are a trans journalist or trans employee of The Guardian, you should be able to read different opinions about the trans issue, which is a hugely important issue right now and has been raging for you know a few years. It should be perfectly OK for The Guardian to have this debate publicly in its own Pages. That can, mean, I, well, can I, I finish? Well, hang on, let me give you an example. When I, when I edited The Mirror uh, for nearly 10 years, in the Iraq war, I hired uh, John Pilger back to The Mirror to write tub-thumping assaults on the Labour government, which were incredibly powerful. But I also hired Christopher Hitchens to do the complete opposite and to support the Iraq war, which he believed passionately in doing. Now, I believe that was the purpose of a proper democratic newspaper at a time of huge crisis and, and importance to show both opinions and to let readers who are not stupid make up their own minds. Guardian readers in particular are smart people. And there's a lot of women read The Guardian. And a lot of the women readers of The Guardian will also be struggling with the trans debate, working out where you can support trans okay. rights and where the line is where it may... So we'll We'll, we'll come on to this because I think this is a really important discussion. Mm. On the issue of having a both sides debate on certain issues, do you think The Guardian or any newspaper should have a debate amongst people who think homosexuality is inextricably linked to paedophilia? That's a very long running opinion. It long justified anti-gay laws. It justified issues, support for Section 28. Is it a valid opinion for a newspaper to publish articles, for example, suggesting there is a problem, there's a conflict between gay rights and the rights of children, as long as there are articles opposing that view? No. Why? No. That's an opinion. Why no, not no. buy some debate? Well, because I don't, I don't believe in endorsing anything which is hateful material. But they don't think it is hateful. They just they will document the Catholic Church, mm. the Scouts. They will come up with numerous examples. Yeah, but it remains. It remains. So it remains, it remains well, to me, it remains overt, and I'm a Catholic. It remains overtly bigoted and hateful to draw a link between homosexuality and paedophilia. One is a criminal offence against young children, and one is a sexuality, which is not a choice. It's what people are born with, and I've always believed that. And so. I think that that is a, a, a spurious argument, if I may say so. Well, the argument I would give you on a similar vein, because it's not all just about the trans issue, we saw what happened at the New York Times, very similar to what's happened at The Guardian, where the New York Times opinion columns 
uh, run a piece by Senator Tom Cotton. He's one of the 100 US senators, incredibly experienced politician, in which he advocated using the military uh, to suppress some of the rioting that was going on in the wake of the George Floyd killing. Now, I happen to totally disagree with Tom Cotton about that, but I also respect the fact he's a democratically elected senator. He's perfectly entitled to his opinion. But the New York Times is now so in the grip of this woke culture that the internal staff rose up internally and externally and made it absolutely clear they were not going to accept this. And the result of it was that the publisher, having defended it, then apologised for it. Then the opinion page editor had to leave, as did his number two. Now, I put it to you again. How can that be right? At a supposed democratic, liberal, skewed newspaper, how can it be right that people have to resign over an opinion by a senator? It makes absolutely no sense to me that that happened. And it makes no sense to me that a, a journalist like Suzanne Moore has to leave, or that three trans members of the Guardian staff felt they had to leave. They should be encouraged, in my estimation, to read Suzanne Moore's piece mm-hmm. and to then encourage somebody at the Guardian, of which there are a, a, a number, I would imagine, of columnists, including yourself, to then respond. I think this is what I find so fascinating about this debate, because... In Britain, and I think the trans rights, but I think we should focus on this because I think it's really interesting. In Britain, there are no newspapers in the country who have editorially the position I have on trans rights. In fact, there are several newspapers who have a very a strong editorial position against trans rights. And the coverage of the trans issue, the parallels with gay people in the 80s is very striking, which is would-be sexual predators, threats to children, brainwashing children, Biology is destiny. Why should the vast majority have to redefine who they are because of a tiny minority? Do you yeah. not see at least the parallels? I think there's a, there's a fundamental difference, and it's this, uh, that with the battle for gay rights, that didn't impinge in any way on anybody else's rights. The battle Let me answer. The battle for trans rights, which I completely support, I support uh, trans people's rights to fairness and equality, My issue comes when it then leads to a new unfairness and inequality in relation to the rights of women born to female biological bodies. And the classic example I explore at length in the book is about sport. And I would put it to you that I I know how passionately you feel about this, and I completely respect that. Um, But in sport, for example, I had a conversation with Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, about this on air. And eventually I said to her, if, if we basically buy into this idea of limitless self-identification, anyone can identify however they, they feel, what happens hypothetically if Floyd Mayweather or Usain Bolt, does, and it's taking it to the extreme, I accept that, but what happens if either of those two guys decides one day, for genuine reasons, they want to identify as a woman and they want to compete in women's sport? And they had to go through no physical surgery. They would just have to, as the law stands, go through a year of testosterone and hormone therapy. Now, are we really in a position where anyone would seriously argue that that would be fair? Sport, I think, is an interesting one. So I'm, I'm about to go on to sport. So don't think I'm, I'm trying to shift the conversation okay. because I am going to answer it. Hmm. The argument of gay rights was always about children. That was the, the, the argument was there was a conflict. So in 1999... Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss declared she was in favour of same-sex couples adopting in certain circumstances. The response put back to her was, 
She was putting political correctness above the welfare of children. The argument against her was her wokeness was trumping the rights of children. Mm. So what's the difference? Well, again, the difference to me is that the battle for gay rights did not impinge on anybody else's rights. What about the children who were sexually molested by gay people? I mean, that was the argument. There were. I mean, take, for example, the 1970s. Children get molested by gay and straight people. Well, in the 1970s, the Briggs Initiative... With respect, you're asking me to defend something I don't believe. Well, no, but I'm I'm trying to point out the the contradiction in terms of the parallels that exist are so striking. Yeah, but I'm putting putting to you the fundamental difference to me is that the battle for gay rights did not impinge on any other rights. But that wasn't the argument of the people. The Suzanne Moore fiasco, as I would call it, centres around her belief that the battle for trans rights, which she supports in her column, she she doesn't sound remotely transphobic to me. She goes out of her way to say she's not. Uh, What she's saying is she's concerned that the rights of women born to female biological bodies are getting damaged. And there ought to be a debate about it. I can so think- let's talk about sports. Let's talk about sports. Mm-hmm. How many gold? Uh, how many golds have been won by trans Olympians? Well, uh, I, I assume none at the moment. Zero. How many? How many silver? Well, hang, on, hang on. Yeah, but hang on. No, 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 no. This is important. How many silver medals? That's, that's, that's a stupid question. It isn't okay. How yeah. many? Forget, forget the medals. How many trans Olympians has there ever been in the history of humanity? But no, but how many will no, there no, be? How many? How many? Come on, how many? I'm assuming the answer is no. Zero. No, okay. zero. Zero. Okay. Who is so, the most successful trans athlete on earth? Let me ask you this question back at you. Okay. In Connecticut in America. That's how this work, I feel like. In Connecticut in America, two very tall, powerful male athletes, sprinters, uh, transitioned to be women in their late teens and have now dominated all the female sprinting records in Connecticut to a degree where it will be almost impossible for any woman born to a female biological body to either compete or to ever break those records again. They may well end up competing in the Olympics as women. And so I think we're at the start of this. There are more and more trans athletes now competing in women's sport. Who's the most successful trans athlete? I would say to you, when an athlete like Martina Navratilova who's probably done more for LGBTQ rights in the world than any other living athlete. I think we could probably agree about that. When she raises a red flag but, but and can says, hang on, everybody, this is going to get very difficult very quickly, she got hounded and shamed and people tried to cancel her please, 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 please. for her supposed transphobia. Who is the most successful trans athlete on earth? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I think there's a weightlifter who no. is... No. Someone called Chris Mosier, who is a trans man. He's a trans athlete. Yeah, but there is a weightlifter who I believe is uh, either world champion or competing close to... Chris Mosier became the first... This is why he's the most successful on earth... The first known trans athlete to complete compete in the Olympic trials in the gender in which they identified in the male section as a trans man. Couldn't compete in the end because he had an injury, unfortunately. What happens to trans men? Do you think trans men should be trans male athletes like this, the most successful trans athlete on earth? I think the serious answer is that uh, trans women who are born to tall, powerful male biological bodies should not be competing against women born to female biological bodies. So what do we then do? Do you then have a separate trans uh, category of athletics? I don't know. Uh, Do you have trans women competing in male sport? I don't know, but it's an arguable point. If they've competed in male sport... You would stop Chris Mosier competing as a man. Yeah, but look, you can take that example. Well, it's a very I, good example. He's the most successful. I, I example of the two sprinters. You can check them. They might well be in the Olympics next time. There are lots of different examples. I just don't believe someone like you, who's very smart and has studied this at length, I don't believe that part of you isn't thinking, you know what, on the sport thing, there are clearly, there's an issue. So how do we get around the issue? But there's an if, issue. So for example, if, if, if you have an issue, then I would argue you're so blindly one track minded about this, you're not able to have a, a, a genuine democratic no, debate. The reason I think this is interesting because I haven't, I've, I've gone for one of the trickiest potential elements because the vast majority of trans people like the rest of Earth are not athletes. They're people mm. just going on about their daily lives. Yeah, so sure. what you're doing is coming up with the, you know, it reminds me, by the way, you won't like it, but what anti abortion protesters do is they focus on the most difficult sides of abortion, like late stage abortions of disabled fetuses in order to complicate the whole thing, when obviously that doesn't apply to the vast majority. But we're talking about sports. I think that's interesting. The point I was making to you is there is this focus on the dangers posed by trans people competing in in sports. But there isn't any focus on the fact that of any minority on earth, there hasn't been a trans Olympian. I mean, there's, there's going to be. I've just given you an example of these two sprinters in Connecticut. They are on the fast track to be Olympians. So there will be, I had imagined by the next Olympics, there will be trans women athletes. And at that point, if, for example, you have a six foot four inch, very powerfully built uh, trans woman who was born to a male biological body, but has had no reduction in physical power, then they are going to demolish a field of women born to female biological bodies. I don't say that to be remotely transphobic. I say that to just state an obvious fact. And the question question then becomes, should we be debating this in a way where anyone who expresses an opinion on either side, like Martina Navratilova, doesn't get immediately cancelled? But this is what I find, I find, this is what I find so interesting and fascinating, but also frustrating. Because when people talk about people being cancelled, what they mean is people have disagreed with them. Martina remains a very influential. She was on TV. No, no, she lost. She, lost, uh, she didn't cancel. No, no, she she oh, lost a couple of quite high profile positions because of it. So she oh, did get cancelled. I think this is if we're going to think about people. So you know, most newspapers 
publish articles which are very negative about trans people. Overwhelmingly, coverage of trans people in this country is not positive. I think, I think it's actually gone the way of um, coverage of, of gay people, actually. I think if you go back 30 years and look at the way that the tabloids talked about gay people, and I was very uh, rightly pulled up on this myself as a very young, fresh-faced son journalist who used quite homophobic language casually in news reports that I did when I was 22, 23. Um, and actually, you don't see any of that now in the papers. And I see with the trans uh, debate, for example, that one of the good things out of all this is that when there is actually a lot better language being used about... Well, you say that, so, for example, you're right. By the way, that apology, that apology, that's not to have a go at you, because that that that's how we get change in this country. The way we get change is people accept that they were wrong and they shift on. You did. You wrote that piece at the time. At the time, it's important to say, when you wrote it, 69% of the public thought same-sex relations were always or mostly wrong. But yeah. that's why I think it's the parallels are so striking. Because actually, in the newspapers today, when trans people appear, it is, is as potential sexual predators. It is the threat to children. It is about uh, issues, the most extreme and representative examples, which are then extrapolated. And I think the problem is when you talk about cancellation, we don't talk about the fact that, you know, a big moral panic about the fact that hate crimes against trans people have quadrupled in five years, that 53% of young trans people have experienced a hate crime in a 12 month period, that one in eight trans workers are physically attacked or report being physically attacked by a customer or workmate every year. I would agree with you. I would agree with you that all of that is completely unacceptable and wrong. And I would also throw back at you that you quite rightly focus on all the negativity in the in the media. And there has clearly been some. I, I don't contest that. But I would look at someone like uh, Frank formerly Frank Maloney, the, the boxing promoter, now Kelly Maloney, who I happen to know personally, whose story has been handled incredibly sensitively actually by the media, far more than it ever would have been 20, maybe even 15 years ago. So I do think there are parallels with the way that gay people were written about in the, in the media. I do think it's going to get easier for trans people because the media is using, I think, better language. And it can be faster, obviously. But, you know, I'm, I see Barack Obama's got his book out at the moment. He opposed same-sex marriage, for example. He went on a journey himself. And he's one of the woke darlings. I think you should be allowed to move with the times and evolve your views. But this is what I put you, and you only get that if you actually allow some tolerance and accept it's going to take some time with people. And rather than scream at them every time they get something wrong, actually say, "Come on, let's have a conversation." On the issue, I mean, when you talk about things improving, you rightly, as you said, you you, wrote, you said you were ashamed about what you wrote about the first gay kiss in EastEnders. Hmm. When in 20, 30 years' time, you look back at the fact that on your Twitter profile picture for a while, you had a picture of your face on a penguin on the basis you were self-identifying as a penguin. And the reason I say this is we can have this discussion and disagreement and all the rest of it, but you would probably recognise the coverage of gay issues in newspapers like The Sun, which you wrote that piece in, it, it damaged young gay people. They grew up feeling the world was against them. They were going to be rejected. Yeah. It was a climate of fear. And coming out as a gay person, I remember, I didn't have a homophobic family. It's terrifying. I can't even imagine what it's like coming out as trans, mm. having come out as gay. It's just, it's so much more, you know, of, of, of a journey and so much more hostility. Do you not think whatever disagreement we can have about, you know, or, or discussion we're now having, having it, ridiculing the idea of identifying as something other than what you were assigned at birth by putting your face on the picture of a penguin, 
that isn't contributing to a debate. Well, and okay, it, let me know, okay. Let me clarify exactly what the purpose of identifying as a two-spirit penguin was. It was because a uh, petition was started to have me fired from uh, Good Morning Britain. It was signed by tens of thousands of people. It was fueled by the online woke brigade. And they did it because I took exception to the BBC under its BBC Teach arm, uh, having uh, lectures to young kids in which they told them there were 100 plus genders. Well, I'm sorry. There aren't. Because if you say that you can have limitless gender, limitless identity, and there are simply no limits, some of those hundred plus included astral gender, which is an affinity with the stars. And I found that so preposterous and ridiculous and actually damaging to young minds. I've got four kids. I don't want them thinking they can identify as anything they like. So I said, okay, when we have a debate on air, and I had India Willoughby, who's one of the most you know, high-profile trans people in the country, uh, broadcasters. And she totally agreed with me. I said, if you're going to have limitless self-identity, I, find, I, I would find that as a trans person incredibly insulting. She'd gone through years of transitioning, a huge physical, psychological, and emotional turmoil. And she found it utterly insulting that people could just go, I'm this, I'm astral gender, I'm blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, look, so when we had a debate, I said, so what you're saying is you can be whatever you want. Yes, came the answer. I said, okay, in that case, I'm identifying as a two-spirit penguin. All hell broke loose. Suddenly, it wasn't limitless at all. There were limits. What I had said was preposterous. It wasn't preposterous, apparently, to say your astral gender and have an affinity with the stars, which identifies your gender. But it was absurd and insulting and mocking of me to identify as a two-spirit penguin. You that. Hang on, what I was doing, I wasn't mocking trans people. In fact, I had one sitting next to me who totally agreed with me. What I was doing was exposing the danger of limitless self-identification. Do you accept the vast majority of people, what you could call the trans spectrum, are just in good faith identifying as what they genuinely, sincerely believe to be true in the face of what potential rejection from their parents, their family and society around them? I believe that people are born to... Uh, male or female or intersex. I think sexuality, biology cannot be denied. And so when people try to bring that into the gender debate, I say, hang on, hang on. This idea that when we had uh, some Labour politician came on and tried to claim that the babies are assigned sex at birth. No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> they're well, born with sexuality, male or female. Hold on, hold on, hold on. When, well, I knew I was, when I knew I was gay, and, and if you know you're LGBTQ, as I've said, it's tough, it's hard. You go through a long process, you have to come out to yourself, you're terrified about coming out yeah. to the world. No one flippantly decides that they are trans. You don't flippantly decide to be gay. Flippantly decide, the, the, the trauma, the difficulties people go through to come out as trans are immense. Yeah, but are we talking yeah. about, are we, are, we, are you talking about people who transition? Or are you talking about people who just put their hand up and say, I'm astral gender? People don't, people don't just put their hands up to become trans. Do you no, do no, some people literally attach themselves to ridiculous things like astral gender and they demand respect for it. And yet when I said, OK, in that case, I'm a two-spirit penguin, because actually I do have an affinity with penguins. We both waddle when we walk. We, we like eating fish and meat, you know, blah, blah, blah. I can construct a very convincing argument for why me and penguins are on the same wavelength. However, the point of it was not to mock trans people. 
The point of it was to mock limitless self-identity, which I think exposes trans people to mockery and is therefore dangerous. Who was a trans person sitting next to me agreed with me. Do you not think it would be better, given your huge platform, the following you have, to use your platform not to talk about various gender identities, which generally speaking, the vast majority of people are trans wouldn't identify as. It's their right to identify as they want, but we've, we've done that. To use your platform to focus on the fact hate crimes have gone up, that so many trans people struggle to get access to healthcare, for example, in order to transition in the first place, formidable blocks, huge waiting lists in their way, that many trans people are discriminated in the workplace, many feel terrified about using a toilet. Isn't that a better use of your platform rather than talking about being a two-spirit penguin? You seem to slightly diminish what I think is very problematic, which is the limitless self-identification nonsense, which I think actually, as I say, it makes a mockery of what trans people actually go through. Uh, That's one of the reasons I had that debate so strongly. But I also think that there are lots of issues about the trans uh, rights campaign, let's give it that phrase, which I think need support and need to be debated and need to be worked out, whether it's, you know, toilets or whether it's prisons or whatever it may be. Let's have the debate and let's not all lose our shit when somebody says something which may not be exactly how the woke brigade have decided they can speak about an issue. Have the debate openly and vigorously and let's work out some solutions because at the moment all that happens is you throw your toys up. Well, I won't say that. I'm not throwing any toys. No. If you you had a pram or toys, you'd throw them out of the pram. And then other people on the other side do too. And actually no consensus is reached. And one of the main themes of the book I've written is we need to get back to having a proper debate where we can remain cordial and reach points of agreement. And, you know, if you and I debated all these issues like this, I reckon we'd reach some interesting points of consensus. Twitter doesn't allow that. I mean, but but isn't it a case that, I mean, I know we don't have long, but we need to have this debate without exaggerating. Now, take Justin Trudeau. I am no fan of Justin Trudeau. Mm. Uh, I don't like his politics. Uh, you know, his history of blackface, outrageous. I find him unbearably cringeworthy in, in multiple different ways. I'm sure we agree on that. So, for example, you write in the book, ultimately, so this was a big moment for you, ultimately, I think the final straw for me came when Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called for, them, for the word mankind to be outlawed because it was sexist. When did he do this? He was speaking to a group of students. And he actually stopped one of them for using the phrase mankind. No, 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 we say people kind. And they roared. They yeah. roared at their hero. Is, I agree with you. It's a very cringeworthy moment. I recommend people Google it because it just shows how cringeworthy he is. What actually happened was she was said mankind. He interrupted, mansplained. We like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind. It's more inclusive. Yeah. She said in good humor. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would have gone whatever. But she said, there we go, exactly. And they all applauded. He didn't call for the word mankind to be outlawed. It's the same argument I would use with this ridiculous run of stories recently, where official bodies refuse to use the word women, because it may offend people. They say people with cervix or other ridiculous phrases. Now, you and I do not in this interview, identify as people with penises, do we? We're identifying as men, right? I mean, we're just two men talking. Women, I know, 
And this is young, old, cool, not cool, woke, not woke, almost universally are increasingly perturbed about why official bodies have stopped using the word women. And I agree with them. I think it's absolutely bloody ridiculous. And the example I quote in the book, which is a familiar theme on this, is Altrincham School for Girls, which remains its title, ordering the staff not to use the word girl in school in case it offended uh, the very tiny number of transgender students, who I don't think had actually raised issues about this. They had just been second-guessed. And what does that do? That just pisses everybody off. The thing is, school, the school is called Altrincham School for Girls. That is not a hill to die on. You shouldn't stop using the word girl. You shouldn't stop using the word women. Women and girls have equal rights to be called what they want to be called as anyone on the trans side has to be called what they would like to be called. And so I, I look at the double standard of the trans debate on some of these things and go, hang on, how does this help you? How do you get to where you want to get to? by fighting on those hills? Well, I mean, th this is a really interesting part. I mean, one of my, you know, sorry, uh, one of my friends is a guy called Fred McConnell. He's a trans man. He worked at The Guardian for a long time. He was, did this documentary called Seahawk about uh, becoming a father. And the point that he and others would make is that, for one thing, trans men are less likely, that the rates uh, are less likely to, to get tested when it comes to cervical cancer. So the point of using that inclusive language is to ensure that everyone, including trans men, who whether you agree with them or not, doesn't matter, they know they're men, they see themselves as men, that's their defining identity, that they also get access to those services and that help. It's just advertised women, women and, and trans women, men and trans men. What's the problem? Well, I mean, fine, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's, it's long. language. That way nobody gets pissed off. I don't know women who have an objection to trans women uh, in this, in this debate, or trans men or whatever. I just don't think, to me, I don't understand what the problem is in identifying as a trans man or trans woman. I mean, some of this, I mean, we're coming to the end, but I mean, some of the objections you made, for example, the fact that the salad emoji in Google and they took the egg out. Yeah. I think there's a child dying every three seconds from starving. Absolutely. Yeah. And I talk about those too. But here's why it matters. When a company like Google, one of the biggest corporations in the world, takes an egg out, feels compelled to remove an egg from its salad emoji just because the vegan lobby has complained, <laughs> I say, I say, hang on, I say, what about my rights as an egg lover, which, by the way, is ninety-five percent of the world's population? I love eggs. I love eggs. Why, why do I we why are not allowed to have an egg in the emoji? What about our rights? But this strikes me. The left is often portrayed as easily offended snowflakes. You get, you know, you, whether it be vegan sausage rolls, you got very angry about that, egg emojis. These are just not things that matter. You're going to lie in your deathbed one day, which will be long in the future, I'm sure. But we lie there thinking, I wish I'd spent more time kicking off about egg emojis. No, but I do think it matters. And it matters for this reason. It's not about the egg, obviously, or the emoji. It's a small thing in the general scheme of things. It's about companies bowing to the woke brigade who demand that things like the egg be removed from a salad emoji. 
Because I believe that my rights as a meat eater are just as valid or as an egg eater as a vegan's right not to eat eggs or not to eat meat. And I demand mutual respect. But why get upset about it? I mean, it's just of all the things on earth, all the injustices, homelessness. A, hey, let me point out, you are the last person on earth who should be talking about getting irrationally upset about things. Why? What do I get irrationally upset about? I think you get irrationally upset about things all day long. Secondly, it comes back to my general thing that the best way for anyone in any lobby group to get to where they want to get to is to bring people with you on the argument. Annie Lennox said the most interesting thing to me about feminism, for example. I thought when she came on GMB, she was going to be quite hostile towards me because it had been after the Women's March, which I was very critical about because I felt it became just a Trump bashing thing and not about women's rights. And to my astonishment, she said, actually, Piers, I thought you made some very good points. She said, we are not going to get anywhere as feminists uh, for true equality for women uh, if we continue to do this kind of thing. And she said, you've got to bring men with you. And I believe the same, whether it's about uh, feminism, whether it's about racism, whether it's about the trans debate, Trans people will get the equality that they want and they deserve and they need and they should have if they stop fighting the wrong battles and bring people with them. And I'm very happy to be part of that process. But stop doing stupid stuff like abandoning the word women or telling girls at a girls' school but still called a girls' school they're not allowed to be called girls. It is bullshit. Finally, can we do finally, that's, this is how we'll end it. And I want to see if we can agree on this. Will you commit to, at some point, using your platform, your huge platform, and bear in mind, I think you said about how you did regret what you said about gay people in the 80s, which is how we get progress, very important. Will you, you know, and, and as I've said, the statistics show how tough life is for trans people in this country, the bigotry, the prejudice, the discrimination, and the consequences on their lives that they face. Will you commit to using your platform, not to talk about, Two-spirit penguins. It, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think I can stop you doing that. But it's some to do more to focus on the abuse they get on the streets that has gone up on their the lack of uh, of, of access. You know, the waiting list to get help for transitioning for gender affirming surgery, surgery, discrimination in the workplace. Will you do something with your platform? to help address that. Oh, and then- hey, hey, I have done, actually, regularly on air. You might have seen it, but I have done on GMB, as the regular viewers will know. And secondly, I throw it back at you and say, are you prepared to come up with a slightly more open mind about issues uh, like trans sport and tr- trans women in sport, for example? And also I would talk about things like the Tavistock Clinic and say, do you feel comfortable that the volume of young people going through clinics like that, having different forms of gender reassignment, realignment, whatever it may be, at a very young age is problematic. Now, I, I, think it, I think it works for some people, and I think for others, it's okay. too I mean, early, I, and I it doesn't do. work. So, in other words, my point to you would be, you have, and I say this respectfully, you have a very certain view that everything you believe about the trans debate is right. And you're not really prepared at the moment, I would argue, to tolerate anything that deviates from your Owen Jones's view. I covered it as this. I support trans rights. I support trans people. I believe they deserve fairness and equality. But I think there are a number of issues in this trans debate which are genuinely concerning, which I want to have a proper democratic debate about, and I want to try and reach points of consensus which actually help everybody. 
just on a point of fact, there is one gender identity clinic for young people in this country. No one on the NHS can get can get surgery before they're 18 years old with an adult with the full rights and responsibilities that come with being uh, an, an adult. The problem at the moment is they're, they're stuck on waiting lists of two years or more. You're right, the percentage is very big, but the numbers going are very small. So any increase in numbers that's significant looks like a huge percentage. And when they go to these clinics where they're looked after by specialists, many of those young people, they don't go on in transition. They're people with who, who feel there are issues with their gender identity, which they then get support for, and then other forms of resolution. So I think the big issue is that trans people at the moment, they're stuck in this bind where many of them can't get the gender, uh, the, the gender affirming surgery they want, or for example, puberty blockers. And then they're told later on in life, they have these physical advantages because they've gone through male puberty, for example. So it's, it's as though, you know, they're st they can't win in that sense. And the fact is the real problem with, as I said, young trans people at the moment is they actually can't get the help they need but anyway. Well, I, I think in answer to that, young trans people should all get the help they need. Uh, but we should also be able to have a wide-ranging debate about trans issues to get to a place where women born with female biological bodies don't feel their rights are getting infringed. And we should all be able to agree with that. Trans people, most trans people I know do agree with that, actually. They don't want to damage women's rights. So it's what, and, and all the polling shows that women are the most supportive of trans rights. Most women support trans women using female toilets. Men are significantly less likely to support trans men using men's toilets. So it is interesting. The polling shows women are the most pro-trans, men are the ones who have the bigger problem. But we hardly ever, ever have any stories which relate to the other side. It's always about trans women and women, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, trans men are completely airbrushed out of the debate, which I think many trans men feel... Well, I'm not sure how they feel because, you, you know, don't have, I mean, I've not heard a single example of a trans man who is seriously competing at any level with men at sport. Well, I just think the most, the most. But that, but that, no, I mean, I would, I would throw that back at you on that sport debate. Their bodies can't compete with the male bodies. Chris Mosier is the most successful trans athlete on earth. He is a trans man. He competes in men's sports, and he was the first known trans athlete to complete to compete in the Olympic trials this year of any trans person in in history. But he's another one. Well, he's the, the, there isn't any other trans athletes who compete at that level. That's the point. Well, but you know, do you know any other trans man athlete well, competing I mean, at any high level of any sport? Football, cricket. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not very good at naming athletes generally. For no, but my point is, I've looked at this quite carefully, and but there are. I didn't know about him. I didn't know about that, and I will look into that, and that's perfectly valid. But I do think there's a genuine issue about trans women in women's sport, and it should be had, and it should be had without people getting cancelled. I mean, again, we'll end on the fact that I don't think anyone is being cancelled, and I think it's a one-sided debate because we always hear about the people in most newspapers, on TV, who are critical of trans rights, Trans voices, you can't cancel a trans MP, they don't exist. Almost no trans uh, columnists in the country. There's one actually at the Daily Telegraph, that's your lot. You have very few trans people in public life. It's a very one-sided debate. Lots of people saying trans people are potential, you know, are in the way gay people are portrayed. Not many trans people, in my view, on the other side. But You know what? You have a massive platform. You do go into bat for the trans lobby, and I totally respect that. And what the I, 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 
I am more than happy to be an ally too. Well, we'll see how that progresses. But it's been an absolute honour. Thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. Disagreed with most of it, but that's that's how things work. You know what? That's perfect. Actually, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to feel slightly irritated, feel like you were disagreeing with it. But actually, when we actually get to the weeds of this debate, you're going to find people watching this discussion between us and concluding we have a lot more in common than we have that separates us. And that should be the takeaway, which then leads to real change getting affected. Well, let's in 20 years' time, let's have another chat about trans rights and see how your attitudes have moved on. I suspect mine have stayed the same, but I, I would be very interested. <laughs> but we'll review it in 20 years. Ed Pierce, thanks very much, mate. That was great. All the best. Cheers for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that chat. And if you do want to help us get even bigger and better, then all your support is appreciated either in the supporter function in the description or patreon.com forward slash jones 84 where you will have a say over what we do and who we talk to um please give us five stars on our itunes to help get the message across more people will listen which is you know the plan thanks for listening everyone and i'll speak to you soon hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.